Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. So we're continuing tonight in this worship series called Who's On First? We're looking at metaphors that Jesus uses to identify himself in John's gospel. And we are locating our own identities within the identity of Jesus. That's the project. And just to make it a little more fun, we're also correlating those aspects of our identity with practices of Galileo Church's co-conspiracy. The co-conspiracy, just a word about that. On May 23rd, which is the date for Pentecost this year, all of our one-year commitments to prioritize the mission of Galileo Church will come to their predetermined end. For just a moment, we'll have no co-conspirators in our church. And then we'll have a chance, all of us, to consider that commitment again, or for the first time for some of you, And if it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to you for you to become a co-conspirator with Galileo Church, then you should know that there are seven practices we have identified over the years that you're going to want to know about. And so we're preaching our way through those seven practices in the weeks leading up to Pentecost. So we have done already three of those in an order that is determined only by their correlation to the text in John. Uh, The first week, we looked at the sharing of material resources to further the church's goal. The next week, Dr. Irie talked about contemplation of your baptism, past or future. And then last week, we thought through the extension of the church's welcome to friends, neighbors, strangers, and enemies. Tonight, we're doing a fourth one, the gracious receipt of care from the church family. And, though it is not technically included as a practice of the co-conspiracy, we will also tonight presume your appreciation for Herr Schrodinger and his cat. This is from John chapter 10, a continuation of our reading from last week, during which Jesus identified himself as the gate. It's a little different tonight, but continuing on in that same vein of discussion. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because the hired hand doesn't care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it up again, and I have received this command from my Father. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I've always kind of wanted to sing a duet with Steph. It almost happened right there by accident. Sorry. (laughs) A sermon in which there are far too many enumerated lists. Enumerated lists that themselves can be enumerated. You count them as we go. There are at least this many reasons I can think of that gracious receipt of care from the church family is, for many co-conspirators of Galileo Church, the most difficult of the practices of the co-conspiracy. One, because vulnerability feels vulnerable. Two, because receiving care reveals a sneaky power differential between the one giving and the one receiving. Three, because we distrust and devalue our bodies. Four, because caregivers have sometimes been untrustworthy. Five, because when you ask for help, you don't always get what you want or need. Six, because we narrate admiration for people who power through hard times and real suffering. Seven, because we narrate ourselves as strong, stubborn, and self-reliant. Eight, because we've been punished for being needy. Nine, because we compare our suffering to others whose suffering we believe is more deserving of help. Now, I'm going to stop there with just nine, knowing that 10 is a far more satisfying number, but maybe you want to fill in the 10th place with something that I've forgotten. Why, for you, is gracious receipt of care from the church family the most difficult of the practices of the co-conspiracy, if it is? Just take a minute. I'll wait. I think it is not a particularly brilliant or surprising connection, the one between Jesus identifying himself as the Good Shepherd and our own reflection on what it means to receive care as part of our discipleship of Jesus. The metaphor just is not complicated. Shepherds care for sheep. Sheep are in need of care. Part of our life with him, then, is about being cared for, watched over, herded more or less gently from pasture to corral, corral to pasture, away from danger and toward what we need, our very spirits fed and watered sufficiently for our flourishing. But if the metaphor is not complicated, the alignment of our lives within it has proven to be so. Because to get with Jesus, the good shepherd, to place ourselves within his flock, we have to at least consider 
that self-reliance is a myth and self-care is a racket. Yeah, I said that. Self-reliance is a myth and self-care is a racket. We have to at least consider that we have been sold a counter-narrative that pushes back and hard against Jesus' identification of us as needy. And I mean sold literally as capitalism has a huge stake in how we respond to Jesus' countercultural call to believe ourselves worthy of care that comes without cost and to receive it graciously. To be honest, the church, too, has sometimes made it hard for us to see ourselves in the pastoral metaphor of shepherd and sheep. I remember countless sermons in the church of my youth about how stupid sheep are, how utterly unable they are to perform even the most basic functions of mammalian life on this planet, how instantaneously they would perish if they strayed from the shepherd's side. Also, sheep were in this construal ungovernable, unteachable, and unfortunately malodorous. In short, to place myself rightly in Jesus' word picture, I needed to understand just how badly I stank. Consider, though, that Jesus did not just come up with this metaphor in a messianic brainstorm after catching a whiff of ovine manure on the breeze. He actually got it from scripture, from a long acquaintance with his Bible, from whence he himself had probably heard countless sermons about sheep and shepherds, and so, from Jesus' Bible, there are a couple things we should keep in mind when we hear the good shepherd metaphor on Jesus' lips. One, in Jesus' Bible, God's own self is called a shepherd, meaning that one way to understand God is as a responsible, diligent, faithful caregiver for God's beloved people. This metaphor for God is used particularly when God's beloved people respond with affection and gratitude for the one who cares for them. As in the psalm we read together last week, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for this is our God, and we are the people of God's pasture and the sheep of God's hand. The emphasis, you see, is on God's kind, compassionate, competent care rather than incompetent or recalcitrant sheep. And two, in Jesus's Bible, God's agents of religious and civic leadership are often referred to as shepherds as the ones designated to carry out God's project of caregiving for the human family. And they are often disappointingly and dangerously bad at it. Bad shepherds are common in the prophetic diagnoses of what has gone horribly wrong among God's beloved people. Not that the people were bad sheep, but that their shepherds were corrupt or lazy or self-important or even, yes, abusive. 
as in Isaiah 56, verses 11 and 12. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. The shepherds have no understanding. The shepherds have all turned to their own way, to their own gain, one and all. Come, the shepherds say, let us get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, great beyond measure. Jesus' own religious education would have included plenty of warnings about bad shepherds about persons who are designated as caregivers, but who are too interested in their own comfort and reward to give good care to God's people. Those teachings would have brought to mind certain individuals in every age whose leadership was cruel and corrupt, but also entire systems of religious and civic governance that exploited people as expendable resources rather than leveraging the resources of the whole community for the flourishing of all its members. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is in the first place identifying himself with God's own self, like he does in John's gospel, the way John's community imagined him clear and confident in his agency as God's own logic in the flesh. And significantly, he has chosen from Scripture a metaphor for the deity of the universe that indicates God's willingness to work for the human family to get God's hands dirty for us, to travel some significant mileage on our behalf, to spend time among us, to take risks on our behalf, to do battle with the wolves for our sake. God the shepherd is God the involved, God the embedded, God the muscular, God the real and tangible help who puts God's self out there, who works for the sake of the sheep. And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is in the second place contrasting himself with bad shepherds, those corrupt agents of God's care who are in it for their own gain. The way you know a good shepherd is, Jesus says, well, you look for the one who would die for their sheep. Stretches the metaphor just about to the breaking point, does it not? I mean, a dead shepherd cannot keep caring for the flock. But you see where this is going. The willingness to forego his own safety and survival being the ultimate distinction between Jesus and any of the religious or civic authorities who ought to have been caring for the human family as agents of our shepherding God. These recognitions about Jesus' good shepherding metaphor picked up from his Bible lead me then to a couple reflections about ourselves as the sheep of his pasture. One, sheep are valuable to shepherds. You don't become a shepherd because you just really love sheep in general, or even a particular set of sheep. You become a shepherd because 
Sheep are worth something to you because you've invested in their well-being, because your own well-being is connected to theirs. And it doesn't have to be this way between God and us. It is a basic tenet of our theology that God would still be God completely apart from our existence. But it is also our growing recognition that God has chosen to entangle God's existence with ours, that the story of God in the Bible begins and ends with God's intimate presence in the world God has created. In Genesis, God walks with the proto-humans in the Garden of Eden. In Revelation, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to a new earth, and God once again makes God's home among mortals. God choosing to be with us. God choosing to care for us. God choosing to invest in us, to find worth in us. We are valuable to God as sheep are valuable to their shepherd. Two. The sheep's need for God's care does not diminish their value to God. Let me say that again. The human being's need for care does not diminish their value. Let me say that again. Your need for care does not diminish your value. At least the way a good shepherd does the math, the neediness of the sheep is intrinsic to the job and the return on investment is never considered apart from the expense. Because the shepherd's own well-being is entangled with the sheep, the sheep's need for care is inseparable from their value. You cannot enter them in opposite columns of a spreadsheet, need versus value, debit versus credit. I'm trying to say this a whole bunch of ways over and over again because the distorted economy of caregiving, both in our culture and in the church, is so prevalent. We have learned to think of ourselves as either givers or takers, one or the other. And we have learned to feel ashamed if we imagine ourselves drawing from the well of care more than we are able to pour back in. You know, come to think of it, maybe that is an especially valuable thing about the shepherd-sheep metaphor that we've been missing. That is, that sheep are, as far as I know, unembarrassable. They feel no shame. They make no apology for needing what they need. And a good, read compassionate, competent shepherd, would never expect that of sheep. When we think then about the church as a community of belonging in Jesus' name, a collection of Jesus' followers who intend to carry on a way of life that he inaugurated and demonstrated in his ministry, what does Jesus the Good Shepherd inspire in us as a church? At least these two things. One, that we are meant to create 
by the help of the Holy Spirit and meant to sustain by our energetic participation an economy of caregiving and care receiving within the church. I know. This is different from a practice you may recognize from your life before Galileo Church, a practice known as going to church. An economy of caregiving and care receiving cannot be sustained by people who just go to church. This economy requires the relinquishment of at least some of your privacy and mine. It requires sufficient time spent together so that we learn each other's rhythms of surplus and need. It tolerates no shaming, either from outside or internalized, about the need for help, nor about having the resources to help when you do. The economy of caregiving and care receiving requires, requires that some people some of the time are uh, receiving while others are giving. <laughs> In other words, for it to work, some of us are going to have to need something sometimes. Have to. Have to. And two, that the church is called into partnership with Jesus' shepherding work, very much like God appointed shepherds to watch over Israel in the stories from the Hebrew Bible. As Jesus was God's body, God's enfleshment on earth, the church is the body now of Christ, Jesus's enfleshment on earth, that's us. And we are called into the caregiving role for the sake of the duration of the shepherd sheep metaphor and all that it means for our life together. I have said that in this economy, we just take turns giving and receiving. Some days I'm the needy one and you pour yourself out for me. Many of you have done it. And some days it's you running on empty and I've got some good stuff to spare. The creative team that helped me plan this worship pushed back a little bit on the turn-taking idea, however. Ultimately, Steph, who in addition to being an extraordinary musician and an excellent worship tech supervisor, is also apparently well-versed in quantum mechanics. She suggested that we throw over the sheep metaphor in favor of Schrodinger's cat, arguing persuasively that if Jesus had known the paradox of quantum superposition, he'd have used it himself. That is to say, it is possible to imagine an economy of caregiving and care receiving in which it is impossible to differentiate who's doing which right this minute. As with subatomic particles that can exist in multiple states at once, states that each correspond to different outcomes, therefore all possible outcomes being true at the same time, you know, like Schrodinger's cat in a box being both dead and not dead until you look into the box. Perhaps in the church, functioning at its highest level of caregiving, care-receiving its own self as the body of Christ, we would be hard-pressed to say who's doing which, caregiving or receiving, at any given moment. What I mean is, 
What if your gracious receipt of care from the church family fills someone else with a sense of purpose for a change, gives someone else a win right when they need it most? What if your admission of need helps someone else feel trusted and trustworthy when up to now they've been looked on with nothing but suspicion? What if your vulnerability makes possible another's admission of vulnerability because you were brave enough to test the waters and now they know it's safe to wade in? What if the thing you need help with most is something someone else also needs help with most but didn't know they could ask for that. What Steph and Schrodinger and maybe also Jesus are asking is, what if in receiving care it is simultaneously possible that you are also giving care and vice versa? And if we throw out the ledger of debits and credits, we'll never have to look and determine which is which. One thing the pandemic took from us, among many pandemic thefts, was the set of ways that we knew already how to care for each other. I mean, even the occasion of our meeting together here in the barn was always an opportunity just to catch up with each other and engage in this economy of giving and receiving care. So what now, what, what remains? If we can't share food with people who are sick or tired or sick and tired, if we can't give rides when somebody's car breaks down or offer a spare room when somebody needs a place to lay their head, if we can't even safely conversate with sympathetic facial expressions and hugs, well then how are we supposed to do it? And after so much time gone by, how are we now or soon supposed to reconnect given that we have all experienced so much loss, so much heartache that has been completely missed by our church over all these months past. I'm thinking we have probably all capitulated more than ever by necessity to the narratives of self-reliance and self-care than we ever did before. Our re-engagement with each other is going to take some recalibration, for sure. Some warming up of our care-receiving capacity, a stretching of those vulnerability muscles, no doubt. Over these next weeks and months, while we prepare to rejoin our church, our friends, our families, our co-workers, our wider community in general, let us let us keep in mind our pledge to Galileo's co-conspiracy. Let us be intentional about finding a new groove for the gracious receipt of care from the church family. Let us be faithful, vulnerable sheep once again. Sheep or cats or photons. Pick your metaphor. Pick your metaphor. 
all of us cared for by Jesus the Good Shepherd. And all of us learning the economy of care that he inaugurated for this world, God still loves. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.